All right, if you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or you can look at the bulletin, it's in there as well. Um, Today we begin a three-part sermon series that coincides with our building campaign. The series is titled, God's Abounding Grace in Giving. And for these three sermons, we're going to the same place. We're going to be in in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And what we see in these chapters is that God's grace is abounding towards the people of Macedonia. And Paul wants the people in Corinth uh, to experience that abounding grace as well. We're going to see um, today we're going to be focusing upon how God's abounding grace causes us to be generous people. Now, let me ask you this. Are, are you a generous giver? Before you answer too quickly, you should know that the psychological studies point out that we tend to think we are more generous than we actually are. <laughs> so I'll let you be the judge or better yet. Why don't we just let the word of God be our judge? If we are generous or not, then how we can his grace can press his generosity into our lives. Second Corinthians eight verses one through seven. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first, first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have these words from Paul as they show us how your grace abounds to us, how it changes us, how it transforms us to be generous as you are generous. We pray your spirit would be upon us to ponder our own lives in light of your truth that we can see where we need to be corrected and we may be encouraged to walk in the ways of our Lord in this area of generosity, we pray. Amen. The last time I preached uh, before you, we spent a bit of a time talking about discipleship. We talked about how followers of Christ are to be, be disciples who make disciples. This is Jesus's great commission towards us. Now, imagine you are being obedient to that and you find yourself being discipled. You have a mentor and he or she asks you to jot down, to list all the areas in your life where you want God's grace to come in and to transform you. Kind of a checklist, so to speak, that you can work on. What would you have on that list? Perhaps you'd want the grace of God to transform you 
to endure a gloomy medical diagnosis or condition. Perhaps you would want God's grace to come and to transform you, to eradicate anger in your life or, or gossip or a judgmental attitude. Perhaps you would want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Perhaps you want God to transform you to be a bold evangelist or to know Scripture better or to memorize Scripture. Perhaps you would ask God to transform you by his grace to be more compassionate or more merciful. Maybe you would ask God, maybe on your list you would have that you want to uh, be a man or woman of, of deep prayer. What would you have on your list? Let me ask you this. And let's be honest, would you have down on your list that you would want God's grace to transform you to be more generous? We pray that God's grace would transform us in so many areas of our lives, but we rarely focus upon generosity. But Jesus spoke much about this. He spoke much about how our hearts are to be in relation to our possessions. He said we're not to store up treasure on earth, but rather to store up treasure in heaven. He says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's true, isn't it? In an interview, the late pop artist Andy Warhol was asked where his inspiration for his paintings came from. And he responded in the Uh, interview, he said that there was a time when he asked the crowd for help. He said, I asked around 10 or 15 people for suggestions, and I guess none were forthcoming. Then he says, finally, one lady friend asked the right question. She asked, well, what do you love most? Warhol commented on to the interview. He said, that's how I started painting money. Warhol treasured money, so money became his muse in life. Tim Keller writes that money is one of the best ways to identify the idols of our hearts. You can always find out what your heart loves most and adores and worships and rests in for salvation. Wherever you most effortlessly and easily and joyfully spend money. Often it is only as we seek to give in biblical, radical proportions that we can discover things that our heart is enslaved to. There's a lot of barriers for us to be generous. You could probably rattle off a few. I'm going to give us just a couple. One, I think, is we can have this fear that our needs won't be met. If I'm really generous, I could find myself in a vulnerable position. So, so I need to store up as much as I can in order to protect myself. But maybe you remember how Jesus said that, that the lilies of the field don't worry about their clothes and the birds of the air, they don't worry about food. They don't store up in barns. And he was, his point was, that's how our Heavenly Father is. He cares for all of our needs. We can trust him when we desire to live generously. The other barrier involves fear, too. It's, it's a fear, not that our needs won't be met, but that our wants might be taken away. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That is, Jesus taught us to pray that our needs would be met. But we have more than needs, don't we? We have wants. We know that God will take care of our needs. We just don't want him to take away our wants. We can't imagine that life would be enjoyable without all the things that we have or without the things that we hope to have. 
We need God's grace to transform us in this area of generosity. In our passage today, Paul points the Corinthian church uh, and us to the witness of, of the churches in Macedonia. And as we look at how God's grace has transformed them, I think we will therefore see how his grace can transform us in this area of generosity. In, in these next three weeks, we're looking at this, these passages from from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And here's what we're going to see each week. This is kind of going to be the big, big idea. Uh, because God's grace abounds to us, we are to excel in the grace of giving. If you're a, a Christian, God's grace has abounded to you uh, and continues to abound to you. What I mean by abound is, is that God isn't miserly towards us. God's grace overflows to us. Paul speaks of this throughout these two chapters. In verse, chapter 8, verse 1, he says he, he wants the Corinthians to know about the grace of God that's been given to the Macedonian churches. And in verse 2, he says it's overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And in chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. And he concludes in verse 14 by reminding the Corinthians of the Passing grace of God upon them. These, this whole, these whole two chapters are all about God's grace abounding to the people of God and how it changes us so that we can excel in the grace of giving. Do you want to hear what he has to say? Today we're going to focus on, on how the grace of God makes us generous givers. Next week, sacrificial givers. And the week after that, cheerful givers. Now, what does the grace of God have to do with generous giving? Everything. Uh, in our passage, um, I've come up with eight different principles for generous giving. I included a handout for you. Some of you like to take notes. They're all there for you. Feel free to use that if you like. We're going to go through them kind of quickly. So uh, here we go. Principle number one. Generosity is a gift from God. How silly would it be for me to say on your birthday, uh, I were to say to you, um, I am going to give you a Warhol painting. It's an original. You would probably roll your eyes and say, yeah, Mark, right. You know, you cannot give me what you don't have. Right. And it's true. Uh, we are not able to give away anything that we do not already have. When it comes to this gracious supply of generosity, God is in no short supply. He has what we need. He is a generous God. Paul writes to the church in Corinth to tell them about what God has been doing in these churches in Macedonia. Just for a little geographical background, Macedonia is the region just to the north. It would be modern-day northern Greece. The churches there would include Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. The Corinthian church was just south in a region called Achaia. Uh, and so this is their northern neighbor partner churches that Paul is pointing them to. In verse 1, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God's grace has abounded towards these churches in Macedonia. Why? Because God gave it to them. God, our Heavenly Father, gives, and He gives, and He gives. God is a generous God. He's generous with our salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
But God's generosity doesn't end on the day in which you receive salvation and forgiveness. It it continues to every day of your life here on earth. See, what God has brought us into his generous estate. That is, he's brought us out of darkness into light. He's uh, out of rebellion into his kingdom, out of rejection into adoption into his family, uh, out of fear into confidence, out of out of despair into hope. This is our Heavenly Father's gracious, generous gifting towards his people. God's generosity abounds to his children. You know, I think something we need to be reminded of is that you know, times we can neglect to recognize God's grace in our lives. We we bury our heads in whatever difficult circumstances we might find ourselves in, or where we become distracted by chasing after career or relationships or possessions or retirement accounts. And the result is we can find ourselves perpetually feeling as if we are lacking when we're really not. God is generous towards his children. If you find yourself feeling as if you're lacking something, perhaps God's design for you is, is, is that you would experience a, a period of want and need so that you would be drawn closer to Christ. Or perhaps that thing that you feel that you must have is perhaps something that really isn't promised to the children of God in his kingdom. Paul does something for the church in Corinth that we regularly need in our lives. He reminds him of God's presence in the lives of his people. Paul is saying, check out the grace of God and how it's come to Macedonia. See, they're just your northern neighbors. Look at them. See how God's grace comes in the most difficult of circumstances. You know, something we're doing in our building campaign is sharing testimonies. We already had one earlier today. We'll have one each week. We need to hear from each other, right, of, of what God has been doing in the lives of his people. Testimonies are powerful. We hear about how God's grace has transformed others. It's an encouragement to us, right? And it also challenges us to, to receive this grace in our own lives. That's principle number one. Principle number two, generosity tests our faith. You know, my kids might say they're doing well in math class, but I really won't know until they bring home their grades, right? So to you and I, with regards to being generous, we, we cannot, we can say we're generous all we want, but until our generosity has been tested, we really won't know if we are in fact generous people. You know, right after our verse here in 2 Corinthians um, 8, verse 8, Paul exhorts the Christians in Corinth to excel in this grace of generous giving. Why? To prove that your love is also genuine. And Paul, Paul points to these Macedonians and he says, look how they passed the test. Paul says in verse 2 that, that the Macedonians suffered a severe test of affliction. And that their poverty wasn't just poverty, it was what? Extreme poverty. What do you think their test was? Can you give when it seems impossible? Do you ever look at the difficult circumstances in your life as opportunities for you to demonstrate that your faith is genuine? As Christians, we should do that. We should look at these obstacles and difficult times in our lives as a way in which we can prove our faith is full. 
For us here at Grace Church, may this building campaign be a time where, where we acknowledge that God can test our faith. Do we really know the grace of God? Do we really trust God to provide all that we need? Do we really see the big picture like God sees it? Do we really treasure what God treasures? Here's what you need to know. I'm, I'm more interested in your spiritual transformation than in having this building paid off. If at the end of our campaign we fall short of our financial goal, and yet at the same time, we experience a rich transformation of our hearts to where we really truly are generous and sacrificial and joyful and cheerful in our giving. We will have much reason to rejoice and give thanks for. So the big question going forward isn't how much money we will raise, but rather how much will our faith be deepened? My hope is that we will pass this test. That's principle number two. Principle number three. Check this out. Generosity flows from an abundance of joy, not cash. There is a myth that deludes us. Tell me if it's not true. We believe that if only we had a little bit more, well, then we'd be generous. See, we delude ourselves into thinking that we really already are generous. We just lack the assets right now. I spoke with a man a few months back who said that, you know, he would would really just like to to be a philanthropist someday. I tried to encourage him that you don't need to wait until you're wealthy in order to be philanthropic. Chances are this. Unless you've learned the joy of giving before you come into wealth, Chances are, after you come into wealth, you won't be a joyful giver. Does that make sense? Winning the lottery does not change you into a generous person. Getting a pay raise, right, does not turn you into a generous person. But the grace of God can. Generosity is a lot like a muscle. And the more you use it, the, the, the stronger it gets, the more powerful it becomes. Imagine, imagine if you... Your dream was to play in the National Football League. And you had a friend who worked for a team, and he, he got you a tryout, preseason tryout. And you show up to the preseason tryout um, not having even stretched in five years, let alone lift any weights. You show up all scrawny and weak, and you tell the coach, I'm just waiting for my big break before I lay the foundation of physical fitness. Right? In a similar vein, if you wait to think that you have enough to be generous, you never will be. Because generosity doesn't come from an abundance of cash, but rather from an abundance of joy. The Macedonians certainly didn't have an abundance of cash, did they? In verse 2, Paul says they were experiencing extreme poverty. Now, I think I can speak for all of us here, but I might be wrong. But I do not think that any of us here in this room has ever experienced the extreme poverty that Paul is talking about. Poverty back in Paul's day is different than it is today in in the modern West. In Paul's day, there was no such thing as middle class. Eighty percent of the population was poor. They, 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 They existed on subsistence living. If the crops weren't good that season, they would starve. Evidently, something like that was taking place in Macedonia. I think maybe they had a couple of poor seasons of harvest. They were experiencing what Paul describes as a severe test of affliction. 
If anyone could have said to Paul, Paul, this relief effort, sending money down to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem that are being persecuted and are starving, that's a great idea, but we just can't right now, Paul. If anybody could have said that, it would have been the Macedonians. And yet, how does Paul describe their giving? At the end of verse 2, he says, their giving overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Out of their extreme poverty, the Macedonians gave with such an abounding, overflowing generosity. How could they give like this? What is it? Well, they had an abundance of joy. Let's do some math. Uh, If you have one and then you add a negative one, what do you get? Zero, right? The, The negative negates the positive. But that's not how it is in God's economy. Do you see it here in our passage? When the negative of poverty is added to an abundance of joy, they don't cancel out. Here's what we read. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, what, negated each other? No, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see what's going on here? Wherever there is an abundance of joy, generosity will always overflow, no matter the circumstances. And here's something encouraging to us. Not every one of us can or will be financially wealthy, according to the world standards. But we can be wealthy according to God's economy. You don't need an abundance of cash to be generous. You just need an abundance of joy. And we have that in Christ Jesus. Now, one message could just be, now, Christians, just go out and be more joyful. Just go be joyful and be big givers, right? Joy doesn't come that way. Joy comes when we rest, when we don't move, when we don't strive, but rather we look towards Christ and the cross, when we're reminded of God's abundant grace towards us. That produces in us a real joy, a joy that no matter our circumstances allows us to be generous. That's what the Macedonians are experiencing here. My hope is that over these next three weeks, as we really truly come before God and ask him that he would show us how we're to participate in this campaign, that we wouldn't ask God to find more money to give, but rather to find more joy to give out of. Principle number four, generosity is to be proportional. What if we were to take our our building campaign, the fundraising goal, and I were to say, let's just divide it equally among all of us here. Uh, Let's take our one million seventy thousand dollars and and let's that's our goal. And and let's split it 50 ways. You know what the number is? It comes out to each of you having a bill for twenty one thousand four hundred dollars. Now, some of you that's going, well, that's pretty good. And some of you are going, oh, my gosh, no way. Right. (laughs) For some of you, you're like, well, split that over three years. That's. $7,100. $7,100. That's like, that's really easy. That's a drop in a bucket. Some of you are saying $7,100. Really? I couldn't even do that in three years, let alone each year, right? That might be how they split the bill at the country club. But that's not how, that's not how giving is done in the body of Christ. We see in our passage that giving is to be proportional. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means. Those who had more assets gave more. Those who had less gave less. 
But they all sacrificed, they all gave, they all gave generously, they gave proportionally. Principle number five, generosity is sacrificial. More on this next week, but generous giving is sacrificial. For example, is it not true, parents? You will, you will give generously to your children's education. And for this to happen, sacrifice needs to take place. Sacrifice means that you give up something good in order to achieve a greater good. Right? That's what sacrifice is. The giving in Macedonia was considered a wealth of generosity because it was sacrificial. It cost them all something good. It it hurt a little bit. They gave something up, but they received a greater good. We know their their giving hurt a bit. Paul writes in verse 3 that that they, they all gave beyond their means. My friend, to give beyond your means means something had to be cut. There had to be sacrifice somewhere for the greater good. You know, Grace Church, I believe that if each of us seeks to determine just for your, for your own self and your own family what a sacrifice looks like for you, and we all pledge that together, I believe our goal will be made. This leads to the next principle. Generosity is not coerced, but rather freely given. Oh, how I wish my kids would clean their room without being coerced with things like dessert or, or allowance or, you know, threats, those kind of things. Uh, parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? So to our giving, it's, the best giving is not coerced giving, but giving that it comes freely from a joyful heart. We read in verse 3 that the Macedonians gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul is highlighting that this giving on the part of the Macedonians was done entirely on their own. No church leader had to, had to push them or pressure them to give lavishly. In fact, they pleaded with Paul, they begged with Paul for an opportunity to give towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. You know, when the grace of God abounds into our lives, we don't wait for church leaders to get us to rally behind a cause. We don't wait for the donor letter to arrive in the mail. We proactively seek out where we can give, and we, we in a sense, kind of beg for opportunities to give uh, joyfully. That's principle six. Principle seven. We're getting there, guys. Just a couple more. This is the hard one. At least it has been for me. Generosity expects the unexpected. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm just kind of a nerdy, brainy financial guy. I was an accounting minor at Indiana University. And so, you know, for me, my temptation is to just make this a calculator and a checkbook reality. You know, what can I, based on my finances, just looking at it, summary form, what can I expect for me to give? What seems reasonable for Mark Middlecoff? What we see here, though, Paul tells us that when the people are going to be transformed by God's grace, that we are to expect the unexpected. And that could be kind of scary. The Macedonian churches begged Paul to, to, to please let them give lavishly towards this campaign. And then Paul writes in verse 5, what do you see? He says, and this, not as we expected. 
you know, as I'm preparing for this campaign and I'm, I'm thinking uh, there's part of me is is a little trepidatious with regards to thinking through um, Leslie and I. We're going to be a part of this campaign. Honestly, I, I feel that, you know, we fulfilled round one. I, I feel a little tapped out. I feel as if I gave, you know, and I know how God works in his people. If I give any time towards thinking about really, truly coming before God and asking him to show me, I know to expect the unexpected. And I'm not so sure I want to go there. Whether you've been a part of phase one or you're new to, to phase two, maybe you feel like that, don't you? You know that God, when you enter into a, when you get on your knees and you, you lay that calculator and the checkbook aside and you enter into a three-week process of allowing him to, to, to challenge you and to expose your idols and to, to see how we cling tightly to things of this earth and we really don't, we really aren't generous we, and we allow him to work on us, guess what? Expect the unexpected. Some of you hear that and you're not going to enter into the process. But many of you will. And it'll be scary. I'm not so sure I want to do this. To really allow God to to challenge me. The deepest core of who I am and how I deal with money and how I trust him. Because I know, based on what this is saying, to expect the unexpected. And that might mean that there's something radical in my life that I do. But check this out. If we do enter into that process and allow God the freedom to have his way with us, he will abound his grace towards us. It won't be just a time of repentance, but also a time of great joy and delight and trust and building of our faith. And we will experience true joy and confidence. And in the end, you're going to beg for an opportunity to give. And when you tell perhaps a co-worker what you've done, they're going to think you're an idiot or part of a cult or both. Why would you do such a thing? You're jeopardizing your retirement. God's economy is different than our earthly economy. Some of you may be asking, though, but Mark, how does this all happen? How did the Macedonians become like this? Where did their courage come from? Where does this trust in God come from? I'm glad you asked. Principle number eight. Generosity results from giving ourselves first to the Lord. Look at verse five. And this, not as we expected, why? Why was this generous, lavish giving not expected? Well, because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul asked these churches in Macedonia, he asked churches all over where he planted churches. There was a, a famine, there was a hardship going on in Jerusalem. The, the Jewish Christians were no longer Jewish, they were being ostracized by the temple. Uh, the widows and orphans weren't being taken care of. There was hunger, there was famine. And the Gentile churches had an opportunity to demonstrate their generous, their generous love for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul was going around making a giant collection, and he came to Macedonia, and what did they do? Paul said, you know, we need, or Titus, you know, here's what we're doing. 
did they what do they do? They first go to the checkbook and say, well, what do we have in our benevolence fund? Let's just uh, we can do this. Right. No, it says that they first what did they do? They gave themselves first to the Lord. Right. They spent time meditating on scripture, uh, gathering together as people uh, and praying together. They they sought God's will for them in their lives. They sought that out. And and in the end, they received God's will. We don't know how much time they spent praying and searching scripture and meditating. Was it three weeks? I don't know. Maybe it was just a day. But at the end of it, they knew God's will for them. Let me explain why you want this. Because it gives you great joy when you give, when you know this is really God's will for you. You don't give reluctantly. You don't give miserly. When you come forward and you lay your offering in the basket, you're, you're going to give with a, with a joy and a delight that you didn't even expect. You're going you're to have this feeling in you that I've heard from the Lord. And although this, there's a sacrifice coming, I'm looking forward to it. My friends, if, if you, if you, if you neglects principle eight, there's no use for the first seven, (laughs) right? It's important that we seek the Lord's will first, not just with finances, but with all things in life. We are to seek the Lord's will. We're to to give ourselves to the Lord. When we seek the Lord, we're reminded of something important. We're reminded of his sacrifice for us. My friends, Jesus wasn't miserly when he went to the cross. Jesus didn't look to make sure he had something in reserve for for a rainy day. Jesus went to the cross and he gave it all. He poured himself out. He sacrificed so that we would be able to experience his mercy and his grace. That we would be brought into this wonderful estate of being known by God. To being his children to be provided for and cared for. It's when we we draw near to the Lord that that we're reminded of these things. And it changes us. Gives us confidence and joy. The writer of the Hebrews says that we're to look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we draw near to the Lord, we're reminded that sacrifice and joy commingle together. All right, so those are the eight principles that we see in the Word of God, through Paul's writing, through the witness of the Macedonian churches. I want to conclude with just... One final application. It's not my application. It's Paul's. It comes from verses six and seven. The first few verses, he's just pointing them to the Macedonians. Right now, he turns to the churches in Corinth and he challenges them. He challenges them to put generosity on their list. Remember how we began this message? I was asking you if if God were to transform you in some area, what would it be? What would you have on your list? Paul is saying here, generosity needs to be on your list. um, In verse 6, he he says, Titus is going to come to to gather the the offering that you had promised. And, And Paul called it what? An act of grace. Our giving is an act of grace. And then in verse 7, he challenges them what? To excel in this grace. The, the Greek word is the same Greek word that is often translated to abound. Abound in this grace. Excel in this grace. In verse 7 it says, But as you excel in everything, 
in faith, all right, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all your in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is Paul getting at? He's saying, as you seek to grow spiritually in all these other areas, like like faithfulness and biblical knowledge and, and zeal and love for each other, make sure that you excel in the area of gracious giving as well. It's part of a mature Christian's life to be fully rounded as a follower of Christ. I hope you see that this building campaign is not just a means by which we buy a building. I believe it's God's means by which by which we are transformed spiritually to be more like Jesus Christ. I believe that as we enter into this with that expectation and with that desire, even though we might be a little fearful, that the grace of our Lord is going to encourage us and minister to us. And I truly believe at the, at the end of three weeks or end of a month when, when, we, when, we, when we gather together and make our commitments that it's going to be a time of great rejoicing for us. May God's grace abound to us, not just during these next three weeks, but for all of our life. May we draw near to our Lord so we may know God's will. May we draw near to our Lord so that his grace may overflow into our lives. Let's pray. Father, this sounds good. We all want to be generous. It also sounds hard. We thank you that you are not miserly. We thank you that you are generous towards us. May we know more fully this morning who we are through these words we studied. May we have confidence to draw near to you, to receive your grace and your mercy, so that we become more like you, gracious in all ways, including in areas of generosity. We pray that you'd be with us in these weeks ahead as we truly allow you to search us out and challenge us. May, uh, may our lives be transformed through this process, we pray. Amen.